The following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church at Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. These two guys were spiritual 
giants of their day. Listen to just a tiny bit of their history, just a tiny scratch. Not only did these two brothers, along with one other guy, start the Methodist Church, they also had a part in inspiring the United Methodist Church, the Methodist Church of Great Britain, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the Holiness Movement, the Wesleyan Church, the Free Methodist Church, the Church of the Nazarene, the Church of Missionary Alliance, and the Church of God, Indiana, Anderson, Indiana, and even some small Pentecostal churches. All of that inspired by these two spiritual giants. It is the largest mainline denomination in the world. And in the United States, they have 12 million members and 42,000 congregations. Now, understand how big that is, all right? They have 42,000 churches. Open Bible, which is us, we have 800 worldwide. 800. And these guys, their legacy, part of it, just one scratch of it, is 42,000 churches. These guys were very transformative of their day. They did things that were so radical nobody would ever think of doing. They were inspired by God. They were so radical that they decided to preach outside the church. Oh. <laughs> radical. Nobody ever thought of that. It had never been done before. Nobody ever thought of teaching outside of the cathedral or the church or the chapel. That's where preaching was done. They took the preaching out to the people. Started this big, massive revival. They also sang hymns. And they were known, think of it now, the Methodists were known across the globe as the most exuberant and exciting singers. The Methodists. Is this sinking in? They were thought of as the most dynamic, joyful, worshipful group of people. Many other churches and other denominations and religions wouldn't have anything to do with some of the hymns that they sang. And so, this hymn, which was sung in the church, Hark the Heralds the Angels Sing, eventually became a carol carol of today, and that's how we sing it. One thing that most people notice about this hymn is that it's, it's got perfect Christology. It, some say it has one flaw, one theological flaw, because he said, it says that the angels sing. And they say, well, there's nowhere in the Bible that says that angels sing, and that's true. You don't find a single verse saying that angels sing. But it's not that big of a stretch to think that they might, right? I mean, because God sings and we sing, maybe the angels sing? I think it's okay to assume that that might be the case, but it's not stated in the Bible, so it's a sticking point for some people. But other than that, this is a dynamic Christology of Jesus. This is a poetic song about the person, nature, and role of Jesus Christ. 
And that leads us into the second part of it, which is the story behind the hymn. As I said, this was written by Charles Wesley in 1739. But it was originally sung quite differently than it is sung today. The song kind of had a metamorphosis over time and changed, had different wording. It originally read, Hark, how all the welkin rings, King of glory, King of kings. And so we read that, and what does that mean? Well, welkin was an old English word that meant the vault of heaven. And so George Whitfield, who was a colleague of Charles's, he decided to rewrite parts of the hymn to make it easier to sing and to fit his theology. And so he changed it into the version that we have today, of which Charles was furious. And he always demanded that when they were in his presence, they sing it the way that he wrote it. Nobody ever dared sing it the way it was altered as long as he was there. He's very adamant about that. Must be sung the way I wrote it. Then comes along in 100 years later, so he's gone now, he's in heaven. 100 years later, a Jewish composer writes a tune to celebrate the printing press. Now, does that sound boring or what? <laughs> Who would do that? I don't know. This guy did it. He wrote this song, and then he died. He wrote this. He died 16 years later. And along comes this guy named Dr. William Cummings. And he heard that song. I don't know. He heard that song somehow about the printing press. And he thought that tune, that melody, would go perfect with Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And so he combined the two together, that melody with these words, and now we have that hymn today as it is. And I think what's so funny about that is Neither Wesley nor the Jewish composer wanted it to be done that way. But God had something else in mind. God created something out of these men's contribution. This had became so popular throughout the whole world that by the 1800s, the Church of England voted it number four on the top 100 hymns of all time. That's pretty significant, isn't it? Number four, up there with Amazing Grace and a few others. So you listen to me and you hear all this, you go, so what? Who cares? Oh, great. A little history lesson in church. Right? Big deal. Why are you telling all this stuff? Well, I think it has a lot of relevance for today, and that brings us to my final point. Nothing in church is more contentious than worship, right? And why? Why is music and worship so divisive? Why does it cause so many arguments and fights? I've actually seen churches split and fight over the music. And I think it's because music and feeling go hand in hand. We love music that stirs our emotions, don't we? If you hear a song on the radio or you hear somebody sing a song and it doesn't stir your emotions at all, you have, it's just like nothing, no, there's nothing for me. That's not a song you're going to like, right? You won't like it unless it moves you in some way. How many of you 
in your relationship, okay, with your spouse or your girlfriend, you have a song that you have together. Raise your hand. Come on now. You got a love song. Let's see. See, Joy and I, ours was St. Elm's on Fire back in the 80s. And, we have, and, and, and whenever we hear that tune, it immediately triggers an emotion and a feeling and a remember of our courtship and dating. And so music is supposed to contain feeling, lots of feeling, lots of emotion. And I think that's why we have such a problem with it. That's why elderly Christians... They love the hymns. Why do they love the hymns? Because they remember a time when they sung the hymns and they felt the presence of God while singing it. And it brings back a deep emotional feeling to them. So when they hear the hymns, for them it's a quick way right into the presence of God. But for younger folks today, they don't understand the hymns. They don't want the hymns because... They don't have that frame of reference. It's boring to them. Therein lies the problem. I'll never forget the first time I heard the hymn, Supper Time. And herein, I think, lies the problem. If you don't understand what real worship is, then you are going to be driven by your feelings rather than anything else. Your feelings are going to take first place. You may find yourself standing in church and people all around you are raising their hands and they're singing and they're really getting into it and you, you look around, you glance and say, wow, these other people, they really... They really love God. They, they know how to connect with God. They've got something going there. I don't feel anything. You know, they're over there. They're really, she's crying and something's going on. And maybe you're really enjoying the music and the worship. I just, I'm a stuff. I'm just over here nothing. What's wrong with me? Why aren't I feeling something emotional? Why isn't this triggering some sort of deep emotion down inside my heart? That's because you don't understand worship. Is worship meant to be emotional? Yes or no? Well, the answer is yes and no. <laughs> so I'm confused. Love, love is love because it generates deep emotion, right? But anybody who has been in love before knows very well that love cannot be based upon that emotion. Or if it is, it won't last very long. Love that has a foundation of feelings doesn't last. Couples that get together and they get married because they're infatuated, because they feel on fire with each other, that relationship cannot last. Because feelings cannot stand up to the trials and challenges of life. So love cannot be based upon feelings. But we don't want to take feelings out of love, do we? Because then it would be really boring. Who wants to have a love that doesn't have feelings? Nobody. We want to feel something. But we know that it's more than that. Our relationship is founded on something stronger 
and feelings. Why is it that we don't base our feelings on, or our, our relationship on feelings? Feelings often change. Everyone at the beginning gets all these great feelings and all this emotion, right? And then what happens over time? It tends to shift into taking care of children, paying bills, raising a family. Life has a way of changing like the wind. Feelings are fickle, unstable, always changing. Feelings lie. Feelings ever lie to you? Yes, mine do. Feelings lie to us all the time. But we cannot throw out feelings. If we remove feelings from worship, it will be so boring. Nobody will want to be a part of it. Feelings play a place, but where is that place? Because we know it cannot be based on that. I'm trying to convince you of that this morning. I know I'm up against a difficult task because for many, many of you at the deepest core of your being you believe that the best gauge for worship is how you feel. You believe that. I'll prove it. <laughs> you say things like this. Oh, worship was so great today. I just felt the goosebumps of the Holy Spirit. Right? <laughs> you raise your hands and your eyes are closed and you're swaying to the music and you're crying and you just feel the love of God. You just love Jesus. I just love Jesus. And you go home and you go, oh, it was so awesome. It's the best service ever. Why? Because I just felt God. Wow, that's great. What did you feel like? Good. <laughs> People say, well, the power of God was there. The presence of God was there. We were in the presence of God. What did it feel like? Well, people were crying. Uh, people were, were crying. And, and we describe an emotion. Think about this. Stop right here. Think. Show me the verse in the Bible that defines the presence of God as a feeling. I've tried. I've looked. I've studied. It's not there. There is no thing in the Bible that says the presence of God feels like this. Some people will say, well, I had a great prayer time today. I just connected with the Lord. I cried. I understood it. It spoke to my heart. It was so wonderful. It was great. Or they'll say, wow, I'm just getting nothing. This is so boring. There's nothing here. I just read my Bible. I feel nothing. This is just terrible. I hate it. It's a failure. So let me ask, why are you doing that to yourself? Why are you doing that to your relationship with Christ? You wouldn't do that in a relationship with a person. Would you base your marriage on how you feel about that person every moment of every day, every feeling, everything? <coughs> he loves me, yes, today he doesn't. He loves me today, he doesn't tomorrow. He loves me this, you know? It, it, it's a roller coaster, it's crazy. Up and down, up and down, up and down. 
always questioning whether or not I don't wake up every single morning and say, oh my gosh, does Joy love me today? Does she love me? I don't know. I don't feel it. No, no, no. Our love is based on something else. Do I love the feelings? I love the feelings, right? Me too. It's great. I love it. But that cannot be my gauge of my relationship with her. Our relationship's got to be founded on something far more solid and secure and stable than how we feel. You know, sometimes you feel terrible when you're loving someone. Have you heard about that? I remember, you know, our kids are grown, so we don't spank them anymore, but back when they were the spanking age, Remember having to spank the children and see them cry and, and feel terrible inside. <clears throat> and at the same time know I'm doing the right thing. I'm shaping his character. Sometimes love doesn't feel great. But that doesn't mean it's not love. How does it feel when God shows up? Well, I have no idea. I have no idea. It's totally subjective. Does the presence of God generate a response that's emotional? Yes. But that is not our gauge. That is not what we rest on. That's not our foundation. It can never be that. It must be something else. Well, if it's not based on emotion, then what is it based on? It's based on something better, I think. It's based upon the Word of God. What would you do if you couldn't feel God anymore? Nothing. I don't care what we're doing, what kind of service it is. Everybody around you is like falling on the ground, crazy, running around, jumping up, and just all this stuff in, in God, this God stuff, and you're standing there, nothing. And it goes on like that day after day, year after year, you feel nothing. What would you do? Well, you would get discouraged, wouldn't you? You get very discouraged and disappointed and think, what's wrong with me? Why aren't I feeling something? Why am I getting not what they're getting? Uh, come on, God, I want this and you're leaving me out. If it kept going like that, you would eventually give up. I know for a fact, I know that there are people who are in our church, you're listening to me right now, maybe on podcast, and you are that person. You stand in worship and you feel nothing. And you think that the reason you feel nothing is because you're dirty. You're sinful. You're a bad Christian. Because if you're really a good Christian, you'd be like those other people who are able to have all this deep emotional response. And because of your sins, because of how you've acted, you don't get to have that. You think there's something wrong with you. I'm a lousy Christian. Do you see the danger in this? 
You see how destructive this can be? What a lie it is? Of course you feel dirty. You're in sin. So am I. We're all in sin. So what do we do? We take that sin to the cross. And there we leave it at the cross and we begin to worship God. So that's a, that's a word thing. you got to know that in the word. Our relationship with Jesus is emotional, but it is not the foundation of our relationship with him, nor is it the foundation of our relationship with other people. My relationship with joy and my relationship with God rests upon Jesus and his word. Do you remember last week, John chapter 4? We looked at John chapter 4 and we looked at the first part of what Jesus said about true worship. Do you remember? Verse 23, the hour is coming and now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and emotion. <laughs> you see? What is it? We Worship is a spiritual experience, but it's also the truth. What is the truth? The truth is the word of God. You see, true spiritual worship is founded on the word of God and the Holy Scriptures. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, nothing to do with how you feel during the day. Yeah. Absolutely nothing. Sometimes people come up to me and they say, oh, God told me this. I had this dream. He told me, and I know what I'm supposed to do, blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking in my mind, well, uh, that's actually contrary to Scripture. So I don't think that was God. Maybe that was the movie you watched. It's not based on the word. You can't trust it. I cannot trust my own feelings. I cannot. Because they are wrong most of the time. Most of the time. Sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're wrong. Most of the time they're wrong. The more time you spend in God's word, the more time you are there before him in prayer and feeding your soul God's word, the better you are able to worship. Because you can't worship that which you don't know. Can you be in love with something you don't know? No. You've got to know them to love them. In fact, that's what makes love so powerful is we know all the bad stuff and we still say, I love you. We must know God's word so that we are able to worship him as he really is. I have been to thousands of worship services. I can't count how many, okay? 50 years of church. I've been in worship services all over the world, some in different languages, thousands and thousands. And I remember one time being in a worship service, and the first thing that entered my mind right off the bat was, where did they get this guy? He can't carry a tune in a bucket. But it didn't matter. It was okay. Another time, I was in India doing some speaking at a big conference, and they were all singing in a different language, their mother language. I didn't understand a word of it. 
But it didn't matter. It was okay. Why? Because no matter where I'm at or what everybody else is doing, I can still close my eyes and based upon my relationship with Christ of what I know of him, I can worship him. In fact, I would go as to say it doesn't matter mostly. <laughs> What's going on around me, I can worship. Okay, Maybe there is uh, one occasion where you know it's impossible, but for the most part, that's not true of our lives. We are in a place that there's enough there, we can find Christ and begin to worship Him. Now, I'm not saying, please don't get me, I'm not saying we should take the emotion out of worship. We shouldn't, okay? I love to cry in the presence of God as much as anybody else. But that cannot be our basis of gauging whether or not it was good. We must stop evaluating the presence of God by our feelings. It goes much, much deeper than our feelings if it's based on His Word. What we know about Jesus from the scriptures, the time that we've spent to develop and cultivate that relationship based on the knowledge of who he is. Have you heard that kind of language recently in your 20-minute mornings? In John about the truth, verse John, and walking in the truth and the light, remember? When we know God through the scriptures, we can worship to almost anything, almost Okay? Almost. There's some things. Almost anything. We can worship if we know him in the scriptures. Spending time in his word. Getting to know him. Using your 20 minute mornings. How about this? Would you do me a favor? Try this. Tomorrow, when you get set aside time to spend time with the Lord in your 20 minute mornings, don't think to get an emotional feeling out of it. Leave emotion aside and just go in it from the way it is, the scriptures as they are. You pray, and then you, you train yourself to worship God for who he is, what he is, not what you feel. God is looking for worshipers to worship him in spirit and truth. And we must have both. We must have both. It's not just how we feel. And it's not just truth. But it's both. That's the kind of worshipers God is looking for. Let's pray. Lord, we, we need you to teach us how to know you, how to walk with you. Lord, too often we make we come to wrong conclusions and we evaluate things based on how we feel. And, and the truth is it has nothing to do with that. Lord, help us to stop making judgments about worship or other people based on what we see. Stop making judgments 
about you and ourselves based on what we feel. It's just too dangerous. Help us, Lord, to be rooted and founded, to go deep into your word, to draw from a well of truth that is so deep, they'll never run dry. We'll flourish and grow and thrive as we worship you in the beauty of truth.